0: Welcome to Puritans Read, reading aloud great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Today, episode 20 of the Letters of Samuel Rutherford. To Folk Ellis, Aberdeen, 7 September 1637. Worthy and much honored in our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you. I am glad of our more than paper acquaintance. Seeing we have one father, it reckoneth the less, though we never saw one another's face. I profess myself most unworthy to follow the camp of such a worthy and renowned captain as Christ. Alas, I have caused to be grieved that men expect anything of such a wretched man as I am. It is a wonder to me if Christ can make anything of my naughty, short, and narrow love to him. Surely it is not worth the uptaking. As for our lovely and beloved church in Ireland, my heart bleedeth for her desolation. But I believe our Lord is only lopping the vine trees, but not intending to cut them down or root them out. It is true, seeing we are heart atheists by nature and cannot take providence aright because we halt and crook ever since we fell, we dream of a halting providence as if God's yard, whereby he measureth joy and sorrow to the sons of men, were crooked, And unjust, because servants ride on horseback and princes go on foot. But our Lord dealeth good and evil, and some one one portion or other to both, by ounce weights, and measureth them in a just and even balance. It is but folly to measure the gospel by summer or winter weather. The summer sun of the saints shineth not on them in this life. How should we have complained if the Lord had turned the same providence that we now stomach at upside down and had ordered matters thus, that first the saints should have enjoyed heaven, glory, and ease, and then Methuselah's days of sorrow and daily miseries We would think a short heaven, no heaven. Certainly his ways pass finding out. You complain of the evil of heart atheism, but it is to a greater atheist than any man can be that you write of that. Oh, light findeth not that reverence and fear which a plant of God's setting should find in our soul. How do we by nature as others detain and hold captive the truth of God in unrighteousness and so make God's light a bound prisoner? And even when the prisoner breaketh the jail and cometh out in belief of a Godhead and in some practice of holy obedience, how often do we again lay hands on the prisoner and put our light again in fetters? certainly there cometh great mist and clouds from the lower part of our soul, our earthly affections, to the higher part, which is our conscience, either natural or renewed, as smoke in a lower house breaketh up and defileth the house above. If we had more practice of obedience, we should have more sound light. I think... Lay aside all other guiltiness, that this one, the violence done to God's candle in our soul, were a sufficient dete against us. There is no helping of this, but by striving to stand in awe of God's light, lest light tell tales of us we desire but little to hear. But since it is not without God that light sitteth neighbor to will, a lawless Lord, no marvel that such a neighbor should leaven our judgment and darken our light. I see there is a necessity that we protest against the doings of the old man and raise up a party against our worst half to accuse Condemn, sentence, and with sorrow bemoan the dominion of sin's kingdom. And withal, make law in the new covenant against our guiltiness. For Christ once condemned sin in the flesh, and we are to condemn it over again. And if there had not been such a thing as the grace of Jesus, I should have long since given up with heaven and with the expectation to see God. But grace, grace, free grace, the merits of Christ for nothing, white and fair and large Savior mercy, which is another sort of thing than creature mercy or law mercy. Yes, a thousand degrees above angel mercy hath been and must be the rock that we drowned souls must swim to. New washing, renewed application of purchased redemption by that sacred blood that sealeth the free covenant is a thing of daily and hourly use to a poor sinner. Till we be in heaven, our issue of blood will not be quite dried up and therefore we must resolve to apply peace to our souls from the new and living way. And Jesus, who cleanseth and cureth the leprous soul, lovely Jesus, must be our song on this side of heaven's gates. And even when we have won the castle, then must we eternally sing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who hath saved us and washed us in his own blood. I would counsel all the ransomed ones to learn this song and to drink and be drunk with the love of Jesus. O fairest, O highest, O loveliest one, open the well. O water the burnt and withered travelers with this love of thine. I think it is possible on earth to build a young, new Jerusalem, a little new heaven of this surpassing love. God, either send me more of this love or take me quickly over the water where I may be filled with his love. My softness cannot take with want. I profess I bear not hunger of Christ's love fair. I know not if I play foul play with Christ, but I would have a link of that chain of his providence mended in pining and delaying the hungry on waiters for myself i could wish that christ would let out upon me more of that love yet to say christ is a niggard to me i dare not and if i say i have abundance of his love i should lie i am half straightened to complain and cry Lord Jesus, hold thy hand no longer. Worthy Sir, let me have your prayers in my bonds. Grace be with you. To James Lindsay, Aberdeen, 7 September 1637. Dear brother, the constant and daily observing. Of God's going along with you in his coming, going, ebbing, flowing, embracing and kissing, glooming and striking, giveth me a witless and lazy observer of the Lord's way and working a heavy stroke. Could I keep sight of him and know when I want and behave as became me in that condition, I would bless my case. Anent desertions, I think them like lean and weak land lying fallow for some years while it gathers sap for a better crop. It is possible to gather gold where it may be had by moonlight. Oh, if I could but creep one foot or half a foot nearer into Jesus in such a dismal night as that when he is away, I should think it a happy absence. If I knew the beloved were only gone away for trial and for further humiliation and not smoked out of the house with new provocations, I would forgive desertions and hold my peace at his absence. But Christ's bought absence, bought with my sin, is two running boils at once, one upon either side. And what side, then, can I lie on? I know that, as night and shadows are good for flowers, and moonlight and dews are better than a continual sun, so is Christ's absence of special use, and it hath some nourishing virtue in it, and giveth sap to humility, and putteth an edge on hunger, and furnisheth a fair field to faith to put forth itself and to exercise its fingers in gripping it seeth not what. It is mercy's wonder and grace's wonder that Christ will lend a piece of the lodging and a back chamber beside himself to our lusts and that he and such swine should keep house together in our soul. For suppose they couch and contract themselves into little room when Christ cometh in and seem to lie as dead under his feet, yet they often break out again, and a foot of the old man or a leg or arm nailed to Christ's cross looseth the nail or breaketh out again. And yet Christ, beside this unruly and misnurtured neighbor, can still be making heaven in the saints. One way or other, may not I say, Lord Jesus, what doest thou here? Yet here he must be. But I will not lose my feet to go on into this depth and wonder. For free mercy and infinite merits took a lodging to Christ and us. Beside such a loathsome guest as sin. Sanctification and mortification of our lusts are the hardest part of Christianity. It is, in a manner, as natural to us to leap when we see the new Jerusalem as to laugh when we are tickled. Joy is not under command or at our nod when Christ kisseth, but, oh, how many of us would have Christ divided into two halves, that we might take the half of him only. We take his office, Jesus, and salvation. But Lord is a cumbersome word, and to obey and work out our own salvation and to perfect holiness is the cumbersome and stormy north side of Christ and that we eschew and shift. For your question, the access that reprobates have to Christ, which is none at all, for to the Father in Christ neither can they nor will they come, because Christ died not for them, and yet by law God and justice overtaketh them. I say first, there are with you more worthy and learned than I am, Misters Dixon, Blair, and Hamilton, who can more fully satisfy you. But I shall speak in brief what I think of it in these assertions. First assertion. All God's justice toward man and angels floweth from an act of the absolute, sovereign, free will of God, who is our former and potter, and we are but clay. For if he had forbidden to eat of the rest of the trees of the Garden of Eden and commanded Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that command, no doubt, had been as just as this, eat of all the trees, but not at all of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The reason is because his will is before his justice by order of nature. And what is his will is his justice. And he willeth not things without himself, because they are just. God cannot, God needeth not, hunt sanctity, holiness, or righteousness from things without himself, and so not from the actions of men or angels, because his will is essentially holy and just, and the prime rule of holiness and justice, as the fire is naturally light and inclineth upwards, and the earth heavy and inclineth downward. The second assertion, then, that God saith to reprobates, believe in Christ, who hath not died for your salvation, and ye shall be saved, is just and right, because... His eternal and essentially just will hath so enacted and decreed. Suppose natural reason speak against it. This is the deep and special mystery of the gospel. God hath obliged hard and fast all the reprobates of the visible church to believe this promise. He that believeth shall be saved. And yet, In God's decree and secret intention, there is no salvation at all decreed and intended to reprobates. And yet the obligation of God, being from his sovereign free will, is most just, as is said in the first assertion. Third assertion. The righteous Lord hath right over the reprobates, and all the reasonable creatures that violate his commandments. This is easy. Fourth assertion. The faith that God seeketh of reprobates is that they rely upon Christ as despairing of their own righteousness, leaning wholly, and withal humbly, as weary and laden, upon Christ as on the resting stone laid in Zion. But he seeketh not that, without being weary of their sin, they rely on Christ as mankind's Savior. For to rely on Christ and not to be weary of sin is presumption, not faith. Faith is ever neighbor to a broken and contrite spirit, and it is impossible that faith can be where there is not a cast-down and contrite spirit. Heart, in some measure, for sin. Now, it is certain that God commandeth no man to presume. Fifth assertion, then, reprobates are not absolutely obliged to believe that Christ died for them in particular, for in truth, neither reprobates nor others are obliged to believe a lie. Only they are obliged to believe that Christ died for them. If they be first weary, burdened, sick, and condemned in their own consciences, and stricken dead and killed with the law's sentence, and have indeed embraced him as offered, which is a second and subsequent act of faith, following after a coming to him and a closing with him. Sixth assertion. Reprobates are not formally guilty of contempt of God and misbelief because they apply not Christ and the promises of the gospel to themselves in particular. For so, they should be guilty because they believe not a lie, which God never obliged them to believe. Seventh assertion, justice hath a right to punish reprobates because... From pride of heart, confiding in their own righteousness, they rely not upon Christ as a Saviour of all them that come to Him. This God may justly oblige them unto, because in Adam they had perfect ability to do. And men are guilty because they love their own inability, and rest upon themselves, and refuse to deny their own righteousness and to take themselves to Christ, in whom there is righteousness for wearied sinners. Eighth assertion. It is one thing to rely, lean, and rest upon Christ in humility and weariness of spirit, denying our own righteousness, believing him to be the only righteousness of wearied sinners. And it is another thing to believe that Christ died for me, John, Thomas, Anna, upon an intention and decree to save us by name for, number one, the former goeth first, the latter is always after in due order, number two, the first is faith, the second is a fruit of faith, and number three, the first obliged reprobates and all men in the visible kirk, The latter obligeth only the weary and laden, and so only the elect and effectually called of God. Ninth assertion. It is a vain conclusion. I know not whether Christ died for me, John, Thomas, Anna, by name, and therefore I dare not rely on him. The reason is, Because it is not faith to believe God's intention and decree of election at the first, ere you be wearied. Look first to your own intention and soul, and if you find sin a burden, and can and do rest under the burden upon Christ, if this be once, now come and believe in particular, or rather apply by sense and feeling for in my judgment it is a fruit of belief not belief the goodwill intention and gracious purpose of god concerning your salvation hence because there is malice in reprobates and contempt of christ guilty they are and justice hath law against them, and, which is the mystery, they cannot come up to Christ, because he died not for them. But their sin is that they love their inability to come to Christ, and he who loveth his chains deserveth chains. And thus, in short, Remember my bonds. that That was episode 20 of The Letters of Samuel Rutherford.